Good afternoon or good evening, wherever you may be listening in the world. This is Laszlo Montgomery once again with another edition of the China History Podcast. As promised, today is the first in a series of overviews from the very first Chinese dynasty to the last. Since I started the China History Podcast in June of 2010, there have been a few other China history shows that have come and gone. Some go chronologically and some, like this show, jump around from one interesting topic to the next. Some episodes are from modern times. Some involve the stories of overseas Chinese who made history in their adoptive countries. With regard to presenting Chinese history from the most ancient evenings to the present day, most of my listeners over the years, particularly those who neither speak Chinese nor have ever studied Chinese history before, well, more than a few have admitted by the end of the Han Dynasty in the 3rd century AD, the names of rulers, heroes, battles, and other historical events pretty much all start to sound the same. A dynasty ends, a new one begins, and it's just another cast of characters in less ancient times. Usurpers, eunuchs, rebels, dowager empresses, and the nomadic tribespeople of the Eurasian steppe. It's a very long timeline. Thousands of years. That's why I looked out onto that vast ocean of Chinese history and decided, rather than do a linear presentation, I'd just jump in and out of that ocean and present to you the people and stories from the past millennia of Chinese history. And I'll do my utmost, let me assure you, to give you as much context as necessary to better appreciate the episode. You know, it's been a long time since I began doing the China History Podcast, and there's now more than 330 episodes, plus a whole bunch of interview shows. You'll find in many of these multi-part series, like the History of China's Provinces, or about subjects like alchemy, opium, silk, tea, philosophy, the chronological retelling of the China History timeline, it keeps happening over and over. And just like it is with anything new that you take on, after a while, you'll get it. And you'll be more familiar with the names of the dynasties and when they existed. In this History of the Dynasties series, I'm going to start with the earliest of earliest Chinese history. China didn't even exist yet. But the people, often referred to as the Huaxia people, got their start in this period. In these lands that were located along the Yellow River. These are the most ancient ancestors of today's great Chinese people. And as we'll see along the way over the last couple thousand years, a lot of other people not living along the Yellow River mixed with these people. And Chinese civilization and culture kept evolving into something newer and continually more refined with every passing century. So let's start off with the Three Sovereigns and Five Emperors, an episode I did back in October 2011 when I knew even less about podcasting than I do now. And I presented it as a standalone episode, number 60 in the crazy numbering system that I regret ever starting. But I'm going to cut and paste that information contained in that episode to this one here that looks at China's mythical and earliest history. The Three Sovereigns and Five Emperors, followed by the Xia Dynasty. These three plus five figures play a starring role in ancient Chinese mythology, especially the Yellow Emperor. 
So let's go all the way to the beginning of the beginning, to the three August ones, or sovereigns, or three lords of China's prehistorical period, and the five emperors of the ancient historical period. The good news is that these eight eh, sort of come one right after the other, so chronologically they're easy to keep straight. The bad news is eh, there are multiple variations about who comprises the three and who makes up the five. Who to believe? Well, we'll look at most all of them because it's all not too terribly confusing. And although approximate dates are associated with various persons, the dates aren't that terribly important. This period covers the six to seven centuries preceding the Xia dynasty. We only know from legends and from what the grand historian Sima Qian wrote in his great Han Dynasty chronology of Chinese history, the records of the grand historian. In all cultures around the world, they all have their own myths and oral histories and traditions about these times. These were the formative centuries when human beings on earth were beginning to settle and get themselves organized. Those times between, say, 3000 to 2000 BC, humankind around the world wherever they were, in varying amounts, were learning the most basic necessities of life and the skills for survival in what was probably a very scary time for humankind. They also began to seek safety in numbers as clusters of families and clans joined together. And all manners of observed natural phenomena were first being ascribed to various gods and demigods. You know, since we're going this far back, we may as well mention the story of Pangu. He's not a member of this San Huang Wu Di, Three Sovereigns, Five Emperors group. Let's just briefly introduce him. To the best of my knowledge, in anything that has to do with China, there's nothing older than Pangu. Although this is more mythology than history, it all starts with him. Pangu was born in an egg that contained the universe. The egg shape and symbol is found in many cosmologies, and China uses it too. After 18,000 years, the egg hatched in two pieces, and then over the next 180 centuries, Pangu separated the two halves of the egg into heaven and the earth below. Eventually, everything was in balance between the yang of heaven and the yin of earth. Pangu died afterwards, and his physical remains were scattered about the earth, and this is the Chinese version of what the Bible said happened on days 5 and 6. All life on earth came into being. Pangu is by no means a god with a small or large g. Let's just say in the Chinese mythological creation, it all happened with some great beginning, and Pangu sort of went along for the ride and helped to facilitate the formation of the heavens and the earth and then all life on earth. This is just one version of the myth of Pangu, the creation of the Chinese land and of the people. I don't want to get bogged down in too many details about all the various versions. Suffice to say, for our purposes today, first there was Pangu, and then there was Niwa, who also gets credit for creating the human race. Niwa is associated with a lot of myths in China and plays multiple roles and has a number of great powers. She's often associated with the god-king Fu Shi, who we'll get to next. In some versions of the myth, Niwa is the daughter of the Jade Emperor. There's more agreement on who the five emperors were than with the three sovereigns. 
In some versions, and certainly Sima Qian's version, there were the three august ones named Tian Huang, Di Huang, and Tai Huang. In English, we'd say the heavenly sovereign, the earthly sovereign, and I guess the supreme sovereign. Sima Qian aside, most sources I ran across consider Fu Xi, Shen Nong, and the Yellow Emperor, Huang Di, to be the three. So let's look at them. Pangu aside, the most ancient of the ancients is Fu Xi. His sister and or wife was Nuwa. Fu Xi and Nuwa are slotted at around 2800 BC. It was they who, with the permission of the Jade Emperor, procreated and created the human race after floods had wiped out everything and everyone. You can see in these lands along the Yellow River, there are so many flood-related legends. The Yellow River dominated the lives of those who lived on either side of its banks. Nuwa used her magical and mystical powers to fashion humans out of clay to mass-produce the human race rather than doing it the old-fashioned, established way. Nuwa is a very important person in Chinese mythology for all kinds of matters related to a man and a woman, particularly in any and all matters of marriage. Fuxi brought humanity to humankind and taught people how to make nets and how to fish, and along with Tang Jie later on, is credited with teaching people how to write. He also gets general credit for teaching the most basic survival skills, and he's said to have first taught about silkworms and their bountiful yield. He's also credited with creating the eight trigrams, the Ba Gua, and some say it was Fu Xi who wrote the I Jing, and not King Wen, the Zhou Dynasty founder. Next up was Shen Nong, the divine farmer. Shen Nong's time would be the 2700s BC. This is before the biblical flood and about a hundred years before the Great Pyramid was constructed. This was when Stonehenge was built and cuneiform writing was just first appearing in Mesopotamia. There's nothing that's been unearthed in China yet to corroborate the existence of Shen Nong, nor any of the three sovereigns and five emperors. Shen Nong is also referred to as Yan Di, although some say Yan Di was a totally separate person from Shen Nong. Yan means flame or fire, so Shen Nong is also referred to as the Fire Emperor or Flame Emperor. Shen Nong is considered by most to be the second of the San Huang, or three sovereigns. As the Nong character in his name suggests, he's the one most credited with teaching agriculture to the Chinese people. Because of the work written long after he's said to have lived, the Shen Nong Ban Cao Jing, or Shen Nong's Herb Root Classic, is also credited with being the father of Chinese medicine, or at least herbal medicine. This automatically made Shen Nong the patron saint of all herbalists and pharmacists. Acupuncture is also something that some legends say Shen Nong gave to the Chinese people. In 2737 BC, it's said this god of the five grains, or god of agriculture, and stalwart of Chinese culture, brought tea to humankind and taught the Chinese all the medicinal and health benefits of tea drinking. More about this subject if you check out the CHP 21 part series on the history of tea in China. Following Shen Nong was the last of these Sanhuang. 
And by most accounts, this was the famous Yellow Emperor. It's the Yellow Emperor more than Fu Shi or Shandong, who's credited as the father of the Huaxia or Chinese people, and in fact, the entirety of Chinese civilization in general. The Huaxia people came from these many individual tribes that stretched all along the winding Yellow River in Hunan, Shanxi, Shanxi, and Shandong. These Huaxia were all united and became the Han people who today make up over 90% of all people living in China. And it's the Yellow Emperor who brought all the various tribes and clans of the Yellow River Valley under his control, and he unified all of these peoples into a single culture. The Yellow Emperor is the only one of the three who has a full name. That is Gongsun Xuanyuan. The Yellow Emperor is also credited with advancing silk farming techniques and how to make clothes from silk. Well, he gets credit for this, but one story is that he had a wife and three concubines, and it was the wife of the Yellow Emperor who taught about silk farming and weaving skills. One concubine invented chopsticks and the other the comb. I couldn't find out what the third wife did except to say she was not that great looking, but the emperor favored her. Other things credited to the Yellow Emperor, the wheel, body armor, weapons, ships, a monetary system, the compass, and writing. That's the third one already trying to glom some credit for inventing Chinese characters. The Yellow Emperor's period was somewhere around the 2600s B.C., this would be just about the time the old kingdom of Egypt was commencing. He's called the Yellow Emperor due to the yellow period of this time. You had the five elements, the wuxing, of wood, fire, earth, metal, and water. This, along with the Jing, the Book of Changes, and other things were all part of the Taoism that became so enmeshed with traditional Chinese folk culture. So he's a major patron saint of Taoism as well. The Yellow Emperor's time was the Earth period, and in the five elements, yellow was the color associated with Earth. All the five elements were linked to everything, and they all had a specific color associated with them. So he was called the Yellow Emperor. The Yellow Emperor came from around Chufu, a city in Shandong province, later made sacred as the birthplace of Confucius. You just can't say anything bad about the Yellow Emperor. Much of what is credited to Fu Xi and Shandong is also credited to the Yellow Emperor. The times of the Yellow Emperor were good times. It was believed in those days, still several centuries before the Great Floods, there was relative peace throughout the land, and the Yellow Emperor, through his own means and influence, brought great prosperity to the Chinese people, and he's held up as a paragon of virtue and wisdom. And for this, and for all he did for China up to that time, he was immortalized. It became a god in Chinese mythology. And to this day, references can be found in all kinds of popular Chinese culture, where the Chinese call themselves sons and daughters of the Yellow Emperor. Another landmark accomplishment attributed to the Yellow Emperor was the Huangdi Neijing, this is the Yellow Emperor's inner canon, or classic. This is the granddaddy of them all, the original, the oldest Chinese source from which all knowledge about Chinese medicine came. It's divided up into the Su Wen and the Ling Shu, and it's here where the most fundamental questions of the day regarding human health and matters like acupuncture were discussed. 
You could visit the tomb of the Yellow Emperor next time you're in historic Shanxi province. Sima Qian and King Wu of Zhou, brother of the venerable Duke of Zhou, also agreed he's buried there. So the Yellow Emperor's tomb is about two and a half hours north of Xi'an up the G210 highway. The Yellow Emperor is also considered by some scholars to be one of the five emperors rather than one of the three sovereigns. The important thing to know, as you could tell already, there's no single, clean-cut, authoritative Edith Hamilton Tales of Greek Mythology order about any of this. It's all very interesting, but there are multiple versions of almost everything I've said, and who knows what to believe. But you can see, with these mythical three sovereigns, all the basics of a settled civilization, including all the necessary tools required for a people to grow and hunt food, are given by these powerful and wise people who were part god and part king. Before we proceed to the five emperors, the Wu Di, let me introduce one of the more important battles from Chinese history. The Battle of Zhuo Lu took place in mythical times, but this Zhuo Lu Zhizhan that happened, again, per the words of the grand historian himself, sometime in 2500 BC, more than 4500 years ago, this battle is considered the second recorded battle in Chinese history, and it was fought by the Yanhuang tribes led by Gongsun Xuanyuan, a.k.a. the Yellow Emperor, and the Jioli tribes of the Churyo people. After countless centuries of human development along the Yellow River, the tribes had coalesced mainly behind two groups— one led by the Yellow Emperor, the Yanhuang tribe, because it was a merger of the tribes of Yanti, the flame god, usually believed to be the very Shannong, as mentioned previously, and with the Yellow Emperor, Huang Di, so they became known as the Yanhuang. The Li tribes were led by this great hero named Churyo. He had a forehead made from bronze, four eyes, and six arms, and was handy with all these frightful weapons. He led the Jioli, or Nine Li, and you won't be surprised to learn that speculation abounds as to who the Nine Li were, as well as the details regarding the historicity of Chiryo. But in 2500 BC, on the plains of Zhuolu, these two sides had their legendary battle, and Huang Di, the Yellow Emperor, he prevailed in the battle. And these people, who became one in the wake of the Battle of Zhuolu, these are the ones who are identified as the Huaxia people, the sons and daughters of the Yellow Emperor. One of the many cool things about having a history as long as China's is that we could talk about places that existed four millennia ago, and when you check Google Maps, they're still there. In many cases, the names have changed, but not all of them. Today, Zhuolu is maybe an hour south of Zhangjiakou, near the border with Shanxi, Moving right along, the first of the five emperors was Shao Hao. Though, as I said, there are scholars who might differ. Shao Hao was said to be the son of the Yellow Emperor and reigned in the 2500s BC at his capital in Chufu. His tomb is also there and is an additional sight to see in that ancient and important city in China. Very, very slim pickings on this emperor, so we're going to move straight into his nephew, Zhuan Xu, who reigned sort of... 2500 to 2400 BC. 
Everyone is mostly in agreement that Quan Xu was the second of the five emperors. He was a grandson of the Yellow Emperor. Again, like his predecessor, Quan Xu doesn't have much that's written about him, though he is said to have particularly made contributions to astronomy and the calendar. Quan Xu was followed by Ku, who was the great-grandson of the Yellow Emperor. He was 2400s to 2300s BC. Now we're getting into the time of Noah and the biblical flood, which, as we know, matches the time of the great floods in China and Yu the Great, who we'll get uh, to in a minute. So Shaohao, Zhuan Xu, and Ku. Not a whole lot to say. But the final two of the mythical Wu Di, or five emperors, were Yao and Shun. These two, you have to remember, they got mentioned quite often in the normal course of Chinese history, philosophy, art, literature, and culture. Yao was the son of Ku. When we speak of the three sovereigns and five emperors, I sort of draw a line right here, beginning with Yao, where, although there isn't any hard historical evidence of his existence, Yao is a a definite maybe as far as having ever lived. Yao and Xun, although mythical, let's just say they used to say the same thing about Troy until Heinrich Schliemann came along in 1873. What's important about Emperor Yao is that he is held up as the ultimate upright, morally perfect, model, benevolent emperor from which forevermore Chinese could point to throughout history. For all the emperors to follow, from Qin Shi Huang to Pu Yi, Yao was always held up as the model emperor. And the main reason for Yao being held up as this paragon of virtue and benevolence was due to Confucius. He was the one who held Yao in the highest esteem and as an example of the perfect ruler. In addition to allegedly inventing the Chinese chess game of Wei Qi, Yao was also the first to hand the kingship down to the most worthy candidate rather than just passing it on to a possibly no-good son. In Yao's case, he had a somewhat disappointing son named Dan Zhu. When it came to abdicate, he passed over Dan Zhu and appointed his son-in-law, Shun, instead. Shun was married to both of Yao's daughters, E Huang and Nü Ying. And for handling the succession this way, Yao was repeatedly the target of endless assassination attempts by his own father and stepbrother. But it's his daughters who are remembered as the Xiang Shui Shan, or Xiang River Goddesses of Chinese folk religion fame, who time and again save Yao's life or so the legend goes. And if you remember the mid-autumn festival history, it was Yao who called on Hou Yi to deal with these ten burning hot suns, and Hou Yi shot down nine of them, killing them and earning the eternal wrath of the god of the eastern sun, Di Jun. However, Yao didn't look on this as such a bad thing, so we can trace the origins of the mid-autumn festival to the time of Yao during these most ancient and still mythical times. There's a CHP episode tucked away somewhere in the back catalog that tells the whole story behind this major holiday, the mid-autumn festival, in the Chinese calendar. That's uh, episode number 57, I believe. Xun lived 4,200 to 4,300 years ago. 
5,000 years of Chinese history is a term bandied about quite often. But as we could see, even 4,000 years ago, these god kings who I'm mentioning with all their fantastical powers and achievements credited to them, well, this is hardly credible history. Everything is all speculation about their lives, if they even lived at all. But we're inching along to the beginnings of written Chinese history. Eh, You have to be careful about that. 5,000 years of history claim, even though there was no doubt that something was happening along the Yellow River and in other places on the China Central Plain that far back. Beginning with Yao, there existed what were called the Three Sage Kings. These three kings, for the next couple thousand years, will time and again be alluded to for their sageliness and wisdom and as proof how Chinese culture is rooted in something that embodies goodness and perfection. These were Yao, Shun, and Yu, Yu being the founder of the Xia dynasty and who was called the Great for his success in the taming of the Yellow River floods. These three legendary god emperors came in quick succession, one after the other. So it's with Yao and Shun, and of course with Yu the Great, that the myths start to emulsify into a kind of recorded history. So although this is a mythical time period in Chinese history, I think we can agree that this period is a little less mythical than the times from Fuxi to Ku. Shun, the last of the mythical five emperors, as I said, was considered another great sage king. His accomplishments were in setting up the basic organization of society, how land was divided up, what rituals and sacrifices were necessary, the stories of Shun's filial devotion, his humility and industry make up a good part of his legend. So that's the San Huang Wu Di, the three sovereigns, Fu Xi, Shen Nong, and the Yellow Emperor, and the five emperors, Shao Hao, Zhuan Xu, Ku, Yao, and Shun. Prior to these mythical eight, there were also the stories of Pan Gu and Yu Hua. These old mythological figures from China's prehistory days are considered the earliest cultural figures who laid the foundation from which sprung the Xia, Shang, and later the Zhou dynasties. And orbiting all these characters are a thousand and one other folktales and legends that make up part of that rich and massive tapestry of Chinese culture and history. The three main ones who I said appear and reappear throughout Chinese history are the Yellow Emperor, Yao, and Shun. These three remain critical and important figures from Chinese culture, and you could see them wherever Chinese calendars might hang, in paintings, scrolls, and in every imaginable form of carved figurine or statue. They may never have lived, but that doesn't mean what they stood for wasn't important. So let's move on to the Xia dynasty. This was the first dynasty of China. And let me put air quotes around the word dynasty. We're really digging deep, deep, deep into Chinese history. And trust me when I say it's once again real slim pickings when it comes to material that can be trusted about this time period. If not for the records of the Grand Historian and the Bamboo Annals, There'd hardly be anything to tell you except for the legends that are associated with this time. Even the exact time period isn't known. I scoured the web and all books in my 
personal library and searched for everything I could that covered the Shah. I found conflicting info on the period in question. Some said 2070 to 1600 BC, 1989 to 1558, 2100 to 1600, 2205 to 1766. Eh, it's sort of all over the place. Some scholars even proposed the first three dynasties all ran concurrently, the Xia, Shang, and Zhou. When you look at a map of China, these early and partly legendary three dynasties were hardly empires or even great civilizations covering vast amounts of territory. Like the Tigris and Euphrates in Mesopotamia, the Indus River Valley in India, and the Nile in Egypt, China's earliest beginnings was the product of a great river valley, in this case, the Yellow River. The Yellow River is the world's sixth longest at 5,500 kilometers. That's where it all began for China. The Yellow River, it was known by many nicknames, but the one I always remember was China's Sorrow. It wasn't a very deep river, especially in the lower courses where our story begins. Going back to the cradle of Chinese civilization and for the next 4,000 years that followed, the Huanghe, or Yellow River, flooded 15 to 1,600 times and even changed course half a dozen times. The numbers of deaths attributed to the natural and man-made disasters surrounding the Yellow River can't even be estimated. But even into the 20th century, in our own modern times, it repeatedly earns the China Sorrow moniker. I first saw the Yellow River myself back in 1980 when I was in Jinan in Shandong province. One look and you could see how the river got its name. All that silt that originated in the plateaus out west in Gansu and Shanxi gives it that distinctive yellow color. The Xia dynasty was the first of China's three Bronze Age dynasties, the Shang and the Zhou being the other two. In fact, you can call the Xia a Neolithic dynasty. This is the period, say, about four or 5,000 years ago when metal, copper and bronze mostly, starts to become prevalent in the great civilizations that were starting to form. The Neolithic period, or some refer to it as the New Stone Age, started around 10,000 or 9,000 BC and then sort of blends into the Bronze and Iron Age. Of the Xia, Shang, and Zhou, only the Zhou dynasty left any substantial written records of their time period. The Shang, of course, had their oracle bones, but there's only a few slivers of meat on those ancient relics. And that means everything and everything we know about the Xia and the Shang dynasties came from records written after the fact. And for this reason, we refer to the Xia as a legendary dynasty. Most of the recent stuff I've read concerning the Xia was that it was one and the same of the Neolithic Arlito culture that thrived from 1900 to 1500 BC, curiously similar to the dates agreed to for the Xia. Even if you go with 2070 BC as the approximate start date of the Xia, that's almost 4100 years ago. This period, to give you a time reference, was a good 500 years after the Great Pyramid was completed in 2560 BC. The Old Kingdom in Egypt was ending about then, and the Middle Kingdom period was just starting. 
It's hard enough to get solid info from history from even 500 years ago, so you could imagine what kind of data there is to accurately tell the story of the Shah dynasty. There's a lot of speculation and analysis from some very smart historians, archaeologists, and whatnot, but the Shah doesn't have much, if anything, to show for itself. That's why the appellation legendary will often precede the name of this dynasty. The population of China back then was only one to two million people, all living in various states of organization led by local strongmen. They were constantly warring with each other, and there wasn't even a hint of any unified central government. China is a political state. It still had a good two millennia to go yet before the likes of Qin Shi Huang molded all of these warring states and kingdoms into one central Chinese empire. The Xia lasted approximately 439 years by most reckoning, and according to Sima Qian's great work, The Records of the Grand Historian, there were 17 kings from this dynasty. China's greatest historian from these ancient times referred to the Xia as the First Dynasty. Starting with the Venerable Yao, the primitive patriarchal society that had naturally developed started to change into more of a monarchical style. During the time of Yao, the Yellow River was flooding like crazy and causing all kinds of devastation. As the legend goes, Yao sought help from the people to come up with some sort of a way to control this river and all the flooding that was caused by it. A man of reputation as a problem solver named Gun was chosen by Emperor Yao to take on this great task to control the flooding. Gun tried all kinds of methods, dams, dikes, and what have you, and after nine years of trying, he failed. Now during this period when Gun was trying to relieve the flooding, Emperor Yao had handed power over to the last of the five emperors, Shun, and it was Shun who seeing Gun's failure, had him banished or executed for the crime of not pulling through on such an important mission. And so it fell upon Gun's son, named Yu, to finish the job that his father had started. It's written that Yu was born in Sichuan in modern-day Beichuan. Some of you may remember this town as ground zero for that massive 2008 Great Sichuan Earthquake. Yu left Beichuan for Songshan, known as one of the five sacred mountains of China. Songshan was just south of the Yellow River, right smack dab in between Luoyang and Zhengzhou and Henan province. Chinese kung fu enthusiasts might be interested to know that Shaolin Temple was also located there at Songshan. Now Yu was fully cognizant of what his father had tried and failed to do, and he was resolved to succeed as a way to sort of avenge his father's honor. And so the legend of Yu the Great begins with the taming of the floods. Now Yu was the great-great-grandson of the Yellow Emperor and grandson of Zhuan Xu, and he's a certified hero in Chinese folklore. He was described as an active, prompt, capable, and diligent man. And his virtues were prominent, and his goodness made him beloved by the people, and his word could be trusted. When historians and philosophers want to pump someone up in Chinese culture as a true model of goodness, eh, these are the qualities that they often ascribe to them. Yu worked on this flood problem for 13 years. The most famous story from this period concerned his 
selfless commitment to the task at hand. And during the period of 13 years, he made it back to his home only three times. And on each of the three occasions, he didn't even enter his house, but instead just kept walking right past it. So selflessly devoted was you to solve this problem of flooding first that he ignored his family in favor of completing his work. You traveled the entirety of the realm at the time, which was centered around present-day Hunan, Shanxi, and Shanxi. You made a unified plan to control the problem and use dredging and canals and levees as this method to relieve the flooding. He had all these streams and ditches dredged and channeled the floodwaters out to the sea, and his method worked, and great honors were heaped upon him. Shun presented Yu with a dark jade scepter and announced to everyone this great achievement of Yu. He then presented Yu to the heavens and proclaimed him his heir. And then 17 years later, Shun died and Yu became the new emperor. And his dynastic title was Lord of Xia. Yu was given the appellation of the Great, Da Yu, Yu the Great. And he became the first king of the Xia dynasty. Now, other than this legend of the floods and how you, the Great, tamed them and became the emperor, it is really thin gruel indeed about the rest of the Xia dynasty. In fact, the matter of succession to you, the Great, is about all there is to the story. And then for the next 14 kings, there aren't even any wild legends to talk about. It's not until the last king of the Xia dynasty that you get a little bit of meat in that thin, watery gruel. As I said, there are no written records or even hard evidence of the existence of the Xia dynasty. Everything we know comes from either Sima Qian or from the bamboo annals that were written in 300 BC. The way kings were chosen up until Yu's time was through the process of meritorious succession. Whoever was the best person for the job, as long as he was a man, he got the job. Yu at first chose his own successor amongst his tribal chiefs, but his selection didn't survive, so Yu the Great had to think of a plan B. Yu the Great came up with another selection, but upon his passing, it said somewhere near Shaoxing and Zhejiang province, Yu's son, named Qi, was selected as Yu's successor. So after the two appointments made by Yu to succeed him were turned down, his nobles insisted the leadership be passed from father to son, and here we have the beginnings of the first hereditary dynasty in Chinese history. Now, I don't want to belabor the point, but again, this is traditional China history as passed down to us by Sima Qian and subsequent historians closer to those events in 1600 BC than we are in our day. So let's just fast forward four and a half centuries to the 17th and final ruler of the Xia dynasty, King Jie. Yu the Great and King Jie are sort of like a pair of bookends, one at the start and one at the finish of the Xia dynasty. One went down in history revered almost as a god, and the other, well, he's remembered as an evil tyrant who personified all the things that one normally attributes to a bad ruler. Extravagance, wasteful, cruel, and sadistic, more concerned with carnal pleasures than matters of state or the welfare of the people. You know, stuff like that. Every civilization from every corner of the world is littered with all these kinds of characters. 
Many like Xia Qingjie are held up, and their worst qualities would be exaggerated and pointed at in order to drive some point home about something or other. In the downfall of the Xia, the Shang, and the Zhou dynasties, all three, there are similar stories of three women who are portrayed as wicked, cruel, and manipulative, and whose wiles led to their husband's downfall and the dynasty along with them. The King Jie story involves this evil concubine he was infatuated with named Mo Shi. She had been causing all kinds of conflict in the palace due to her antics and taking advantage of King Jie's infatuation with her. She simply loved to see people tortured, and the more gruesome and horrible the torture was, the more she was delighted. And King Jie humored her time and again and allowed his beloved Mo Shi to satisfy her passion for inflicting pain on the innocents. There was a virtuous man who was part of Jie's court named Yi Yin, who came from the state of Shang. He tried to advise Jie to cool it and be more of a man of the people, but King Jie would have nothing of this. Well, this Yi Yin ended up throwing his lot in with King Tang of the Shang state. And the Shang state went from being one of the many states subservient to the Xia, but ended up defeating Jie in battle and forced him to flee to present-day Anhui province, where the last king of the Xia dynasty died in 1675 BC. And once King Tang saw that the Xia was in decline, he initiated a number of wars that ultimately led to the demise of not only the wicked King Jie, but the dynasty as well. And for the first time, and not the last, we'll see, often going hand in hand with the political decline of the dynasty, in the case of the Xia, there had also been all kinds of natural disasters and astronomical anomalies during the time of Jie that were mentioned in the ancient writings. And stuff like this is usually associated with a ruler who had lost the mandate of heaven. It was 1675 BC when the Xia ended and the Shang began. And like I said at the beginning, the dates aren't agreed upon. Some say 1675 BC the Xia ended, and others say 1600 BC. And this was the ancient Battle of Mingtiao on the Henan Shanxi border west of Luoyang, where Jie fell to the army led by King Tang of Shang. And it's the Shang Dynasty that we'll look at in the next episode. The Shang people didn't leave any written records that survived to modern times, so all we have are whatever archaeologists have been able to dig up. And the main thing we'll look at next time will be the Shang Oracle Bones. When I say there were no written records, there were these Oracle Bones, and where the earliest forms of Chinese writing is concerned, this is where that began. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Do yourself a favor and come back next time to find out more when we'll cover what a lot of people call the first real dynasty of China. Trust me when I say there isn't much to hang on to, and it's only slightly less legendary than the Xia. So I hope you'll tune in when I air that one. So for now, this is Laszlo Montgomery once again wishing everyone a fond farewell from blissful Southern California. Keep those questions, topic suggestions, and comments coming. And feel free to visit my website at teacup.media. There you'll find links to everything and everything you'll need to know about where to find this show. Still going strong since 2010. Take care, everyone.